Hello again. I'm bringing you number four in our series of sequential studies of the book of Revelation. And we are again concerned with the passage from Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to verse 20. Now, this was our passage last time, but I pointed out then that the passage contains themes, but uh, two themes that we've been able to separate out sufficiently uh, to cover them in two sessions rather than one. And last time we looked at the first of those themes, which was the glory of Christ as it is revealed as far as it is revealed in the Apostle John's first vision, which is recorded in our passage. And the second theme will concern us today, and that is the nature or character of the churches, the churches to which John is going to send the book of Revelation when it is complete. And therefore, we're looking at those verses, and I'm going to read the passage um, omitting the description of the glorified Christ that we considered last time for time's sake. So here we are, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Oh, there then follows the description of the glorified Christ, which we looked at in detail last time. And so we'll pick it up again in verse 17. Uh, John writes, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. 
and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery or secret, probably a better translation, the secret of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So we're going to look at the seven churches and try to learn from them what churches ought to be like, what local churches ought to be like because uh, these churches were local churches and it would be directly applicable to our own local churches, those to which we belong, if we could draw some helpful lessons from these verses. I'm going to suggest that the passage gives us two distinctly different perspectives on the nature of the church. And the first of those perspectives is what I might call an earthbound perspective. And the second is a heavenly perspective. Man's view and God's view, if you like. Now, the earthly perspective is given to us uh, in what an artist would call a lightning sketch in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John gives us a miniature, a lightning sketch of what it meant in those days to be a church in a society dominated by Roman occupation, in a society dominated by persecutions of Christians who were considered to be enemies of the state. What it means uh, to be a church and what it means to be a Christian uh, under those kinds of circumstance. Our circumstances, of course, are quite different. Uh, but nevertheless, these ideas presented by John here bring out principles that I believe apply to churches in all ages. So let's just have a look at them for a moment. John says, I'm your brother. Well, that's fine. That's I expected. And your companion. In other words, John was there. You see, he had lived in one of those churches, in the church at Ephesus. And incidentally, the background I'm using today are of uh, a picture of ruins of those Greek remains in, in Ephesus. Uh, he had lived in Ephesus uh, before he had been transported to the rocky island of Patmos, which was a Roman penal colony. 
So John had been uh, their companion in tribulation. That's the first thing he mentions. Trouble. Extreme trial. It's a a word derived from a a form of uh, Roman torture. And it signifies extreme trials, extreme trouble, difficulties, problems. And John had been their companion in those problems that they face. Now, we shall see much more uh, about the churches in, in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, because each church receives a letter from Christ, dictated to John, of course. Uh, but nevertheless, the kinds of trouble, the kinds of tribulation that they suffered uh, were first and I think foremost persecution from uh, the Roman authorities and also to some extent from from uh, powerful Jewish interests. And uh, those situations uh, were constant in those days. The churches generally were churches under persecution. Um, And the other form of trouble, tribulation, that the churches experienced was internal, internal conflicts. There were those in most of the churches, five out of the seven, had internal troubles uh, which were related to Uh, heretical teachings and uh, to a certain extent immoral practices that carried over from their pagan backgrounds. These of course were Gentile churches. So the churches were churches in tribulation but you know that is a generality. That is something that uh, is and has been true of all generations and is true of our own generation. Uh, Let me just read you uh, something from the book. Uh, This tells us of Paul and Barnabas returning from the first missionary journey and uh, in doing so strengthening the churches that they had planted on the way out. They came back, they were returning to Antioch and they revisited these churches uh, to set certain things in order, uh, as our our text tells us. Let me just read that. He says in Acts chapter 14, in Acts chapter 14 and verse 21, uh, speaking of Paul and Barnabas returning from the first missionary journey, that when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, But you see that important little statement. Uh, They had told them 
we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, in one sense, of course, they were already in the kingdom of God. They were members of it. They were citizens of heaven. But uh, I think here the record that Luke is, is giving us is using the word kingdom of God as that final culmination, heaven, glory, to which every believer looks forward. Uh, tribulation, trouble, difficulty is characteristic of the church. And as we look at it from a human perspective, we find in churches generally, there are struggles which arise both from external persecution and from internal conflicts. And not a very bright and beautiful picture. And we just see far more of it in chapters two and three of Revelation. But I want to spend most time on the other perspective that is given to us very clearly in these verses. The heavenly perspective begins in John's vision by seeing the churches represented by, symbolized by seven golden lampstands. And incidentally, you may notice, uh, this is almost in passing, but at the end of our passage, uh, the Lord Jesus explains the symbolism. He, he doesn't leave us there to work out what the lampstands mean and what the stars in the hand of the uh, glorified Christ mean. He tells us quite clearly, and we shall look at those, of course, as we go, the lampstands are the churches, they represent the churches. Now, there are seven separate lampstands. Uh, this is not the menorah, the seven-branched lampstand uh, that nevertheless was a single lampstand, which uh, was used in the tabernacle and, and later in the temple and which was tended by the priests on a daily basis and served to illuminate the holy place. Now that separateness that is introduced here is a departure from the unity of the menorah uh, I almost said Unitarian, but that wouldn't have been an appropriate word, considering its modern meaning. Uh, the unity of the menorah, uh, with nevertheless seven lamps, is to some extent reflected here, and yet a difference is drawn. Each church stands on its own. Now, what that signifies, I think, regardless of any uh, denominational attachment. I'm not speaking against denominations, um, but uh, personally, I believe in independency of local churches, but, but that's not an argument I want to get into now, and it's not one that matters. What this is telling us is that each church 
had a responsibility for its own affairs. Each local church was directly answerable to Christ. And that is an important consideration that churches as churches, as, as, as corporate entities, are answerable to Christ. But of course they have a unity and that unity is provided by Christ himself for he is in the midst of the churches. Now the fact that there were seven churches uh, recorded or addressed in the book of Revelation uh, is I think also symbolic. Seven is a number which is frequently used in the Bible to denote perfection or completeness. And I'm suggesting that these seven churches, they were seven real churches in seven real cities, nevertheless represent to us the totality of local churches throughout time and throughout the world. And I think therefore what is true of the churches we read about in uh, this passage is also true of the churches we are part of today. It has been always been true, just as uh, they were suffering persecution, so our churches suffer persecution and so on. But we're looking at the, the heavenly perspective and the heavenly perspective sees them as responsible in, as churches individually to Christ. The second thing we might notice is that they are golden lampstands. The menorah was a golden lampstand made, I understand, out of a single piece of gold. Well, they're golden, and that means they are valuable. In the, in the eyes of God, each local church is precious, it's valuable, it's golden. I wonder whether you and I have a right view of our local church. Does our local church mean as much to us as it means to Christ? Do we look upon the local church with all its failings and all its problems, all its issues, all its frailties? Do we look upon it as something of great value in the eyes of God? Do we value it as much as he does? We should do. Well then, of course, the purpose of a lamp stand is to raise the lamp to a position where it can give light over a large area. And again, that is one of the responsibilities of the local church. We are to make visible the light of the gospel. We are to raise it in such a way that people notice it and know about it, that people know what we believe, that people hear the gospel by one means or another. And that is an important function and an important responsibility 
of the local church. You may, may remember how the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that, that nobody lights a, a, a lamp and puts it under a bucket. Um, no, he, using a different uh, metaphor, he said a church ought to be, or the Christian ought to be, like a city set upon a hill, visible from a large distance away. Well, I think you get the picture. One of the great responsibilities, one of the main purposes of a local church is to lift the light of the gospel in their community, their locality, so that it is visible to the unbelieving world around. And, and the lamp, of course, itself is the gospel, which Paul says in his first chapter to the Romans, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, that the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So there we have responsibilities. The, the, the parallel I do want to draw between the uh, menorah in the tabernacle and the lampstands here in Revelation is that in the tabernacle, it was a perpetual task of the priests to trim the lamps and keep them filled with oil. And here we have Christ dressed in priestly robes, as we saw uh, last time, uh, who is among the lampstands. He is among the lampstands. And uh, that is, I think, illustrative, symbolic of the fact that the local church depends upon Christ to keep the lamps filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit and to keep the, the wick trimmed so that uh, the lamp burns brightly. Uh, this is the work of Christ and yet it is the responsibility of the church. Now that's not a contradiction. It is as we respond to our responsibilities that Christ provides the oil of the Holy Spirit and his work of trimming, pruning, if you like, uh, another analogy, so that the church in, remains a light-giving church and the lamp doesn't fade or go out. Well, there are the, the lampstands <clears throat> and Christ's work uh, upon them and among them and in them and the responsibilities that we who are in the churches are, uh, have got to discharge. Well, what about the second picture that we get here, the second uh, metaphor, the stars? that are in the right hand of Christ. Now, these, we are told, are the angels of the church, the angels to whom John has got to send a physical book. And I think we must realize immediately that the angels here are not supernatural beings. 
I know people argue about this, but, but I think it's absolutely clear that the angels are the messengers of the churches, because that is what the word angel means in, in the Greek language. It simply means a messenger. Now that messenger may be a supernatural messenger. It's often used uh, in the New Testament and indeed in the Old Testament to signify an angelic messenger who is supernatural. But it is also used uh, occasionally in the New Testament to signify simply a messenger, somebody who brings a message. And the fact that the stars in the right hand of Christ symbolize something that is real, that's the whole point of, of apocalyptic literature, uh, truth is presented in symbols and we have to interpret the symbol to find out the truth that lies beneath it. The stars are the symbols. So the angels can't be symbols anymore, can they? They must be real things, real people. And because the word simply means messenger, I think there is a 99.9% .9 certainty that it is intended that here they represent or describe those whose responsibility it is to preach the word of God, to bring the message of God to the congregation of that particular church. Each church has a messenger, a, a head preacher, if you like, a main preacher. Uh, they may have had other preachers, I'm sure they did. But nevertheless, there is somebody who is viewed as responsible in a spiritual sense for the well-being of that church and responsible in particular uh, for ministering the word of God and preaching Christ in all his majesty and glory and power. Now, this is really very important because the messengers of the churches, call them pastors if you like, the pastors or the elders of churches are in the right hand of Christ. And that is a very meaningful statement. The right hand, of course, with the hand of blessing, the hand of, 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 of prosperity. Uh, and, and they're in his right hand and not in his left hand. They're in his right hand and therefore they are under the blessing of Christ. And they are stars, not in the sense of movie stars and, and the like, although some preachers uh, uh, try to uh, fulfill that kind of role. But no, we're talking about ordinary local churches. And we're talking about people who are there to shine like stars in a dark place. And therefore the ministry of the word in those churches is something that is to shine in the sense that it illuminates the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
and promotes godliness, promotes obedience to the word, promotes the glory of Christ in the in the followers that uh, uh, gather together to constitute a local church. And there's a very interesting verse in the letter to the Hebrews. I'm going to read that to you. It's Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Obey your leaders, elders, preachers. Obey your leaders. Some translations say obey those who have the rule over you, but, but that is a rather unfortunate uh, wording because it, it simply means leaders. Obey your leaders. For they watch over your souls as those who must give account. Let them do it with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Uh, the leaders of a church, and especially those who preach the word, are going one day to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, not to be judged, but to give an account of all they have done. That's true of all of us, by the way. Every Christian, says Paul, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not to be judged, not to be condemned, but to uh, be able to show what they've done with the life that God has given to them and with the salvation that has been purchased for them by the Lord Jesus Christ. They have a responsibility, especially a responsibility that falls upon the leaders. They are going to have to give an account for the souls for the spiritual health, for the things that are achieved by the Christians under their ministry. And they should be highly esteemed for their work's sake, for the sake of their work. Uh, they are to be considered uh, in a very special place because they are in the hand, the right hand of Christ. Now that's a great comfort to them to know that they are in the right hand of Christ. That he holds them, that he uses them, that he helps them in all their endeavors and in all their uh, labors for him. But it also lays a burden of responsibility upon the Christians who sit under their ministry. And that responsibility is to obey, uh, to follow the teaching, uh, to esteem them highly, uh, to support them. It's so easy to criticize a minister, a pastor, a preacher, because they're not perfect. They make mistakes. Uh, they sometimes preach very well and other times they don't preach very well but there should be a constant and continual support from the congregation for those who lead them and that should be something that is constant something that is unchanging and if that happens as it should uh, 
then you have not only a contented church, but you have an effective church. So then, let's uh, try to summarize what we have learned of the heavenly perspective on the local church. Uh, you see, the, the, the local church can be thought of, if you like, as a two-sided coin. One side has been exposed to the atmosphere. It has grown dull. It has become scratched. And to some extent, the, the image on it might be uh, difficult to make out because it's been worn away. Uh, that, if you like, is, is a picture of the earthly view of a local church, not necessarily a very beautiful object. Uh, but now let's turn the coin over and expose a side that has not been uh, exposed to uh, a polluting atmosphere, the world in which we live, the God-rejecting world in which we live and seek to witness. Let's turn the coin over. And here we see a pristine gold coin. The gold shines through. We see it is pure gold. And here we see perhaps the image of Christ reflected. Uh, and here we see something that is precious and precious beyond gold and silver in the eyes of God. We see here a church which takes responsibility for its own affairs and, and answers for them to Christ. We see a church which lifts high the lamp of the gospel so that all might see it. We see a church which takes care to, uh, to ensure that the lamps are filled with oil and the wicks are trimmed and yet rely on Christ for that work. We see a church in which the leaders, the preachers, the elders, the messengers of God are given the respect that is due to them and forgiven for their failings and their weaknesses because they are humans like everybody else. What is your perspective on the church? Well, what I am suggesting is that we need both perspectives. We need to see the church as it is, suffering in the real world, persecuted, troubled by internal conflicts, weak, and sometimes uh, failing in its task. But we need to see the heavenly perspective at the same time. The both sides of the coin are present at the same time. And if we have that other perspective, not just the earthly perspective, but the other perspective, the heavenly perspective that is offered to us here, I think we shall value the local church. We shall love it. We shall esteem those who lead it. We shall see it as the, the expression of Christ in a locality, the testimony of God among a godless people. So then, let's ponder upon that and make sure we have our own clear view 
of what the local church is and how much it means to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you.